Fifteen years ago, um, we all remember exactly where we were at, and uh, I remember because I had just moved from Virginia Beach to Iowa uh, to a new church start, and um, my wife and my firstborn child, our only child at the time, had just flown on an airplane the day before, and uh, it gave me a lot to be thankful for. Is we were, is my wife and I, we were in our community groups a couple of weeks ago. In our community groups, we share our stories, and we share about three people that's changed our lives, three places, and three events. And so many of the, those people in our community group said that the one event, one of the three events that changed their life dramatically in their entire lifetime was 9-11. Because especially for this community, uh, that uh, ramped up a lot of deployments, and a lot of hurt, and a lot of pain, and uh, I want to say thank you so much to our servicemen and women, and the families that stand beside them, uh, for all the sacrifices that you have made, and that you continue to make. Thank you so much for uh, protecting us. Today, we're in a series called Eat This Book, and uh, this is a second part in our series, and i got to be honest with you, I'm really excited about this series. The whole premise of this series is trying to get people to read the Bible. And um, today, it's going to be very, very different. It's a different type of teaching than I've ever done here at One Church. And I'm going to try to not make it boring, okay? So, by the way, if you hate it, and this is your first time, you'll have to try us back some, you know, I mean, you're welcome to hang out with us, but it's going to be a little bit different today. Because, if you think about it, most of us, all of us, we have heard that, hey, we need to read this book, that we need to study this book, um, by the way, this is the best-selling book of all time. When you go on New York Times bestseller list, and it may have number one, maybe a Daniel Steele uh, novel or a Tom Clancy. But in the fine print, it says at the bottom uh, that barring the Bible, these are the tops. So um, this is the most sold, the most read book in, in America, in the United States, in the world. By the way, this is the most shoplifted book in America and in the world, believe it or not. All right? um, uh, more than 75% of Americans say that they believe the Bible is either the Word of God or the inspired Word of God. So uh, even though we come to all of this, these statistics and all of this knowledge, so many times we don't read this. And, and what's amazing is many of us, have we've been to high school, we've been to college, and we've heard people who are smarter than us with degrees behind their names blow holes all through this and say, you know what, if you believe the Bible, you're stupid, you're dumb, you're weak-minded. I have heard that. You have probably heard that as well. And that's what I want to talk about today. Can this book be trusted you know, I, I challenged you guys last week to read through the New Through 30 plan. We're going through the New Testament in 30 days. How many of y'all took that challenge? Let me see your hands. All right. How many of y'all read at least a day this week? Let me see your hands. Way to go, guys. Very, very good. You know, I was reading on the plan that said it takes 15 minutes to do. <laughs> yeah. It took me longer than 15 minutes. I don't know if it took you longer. Um, I am actually up to date on my plan, and the only reason I'm up to date is because of those grace days, you know? Um, so, uh, I mean, I am, I am hanging on for dear life. So I hope you are as well. And I hope you can, even if you've missed a day or two, keep on reading, don't stop. But the point is, you hear people like me, preachers, churches, say, read this book. But yet so many people 
I don't know if, I, I wonder if they struggle. Is this stuff really real in here? I mean, did it really happen? I mean, Adam and Eve and a snake. Did that really happen? And Jonah getting swallowed by, by fish. Did that really happen? You know, I mean, and some of you, you're like, man, I, I struggle with that. And you doubt. And I want to let you know that if you struggle with that and doubt, you're in a good place. And you're in a, you're, you're in a safe place in the fact that, you know what, we're not going to judge you for that. In fact, one of the things that we're going to have on, my, on the screen up here is we're going to have some my text number up here so that you can be able to text me any questions so that this, this can be a conversation. But I want to unearth this. Can we trust this book? Because for so many different religions, whether it's the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith, whether it's the Quran with Islam, whether it's the great Sam guy with Buddhism or the Sanskrit text of Hinduism, all of these different religions say you need to read their book. But is this book as good as those texts or even better? You see, I'm going to say it's better. I'm going to go ahead and just show you my hands today. But I'm going to give you some evidence so that you can be able to see this. Because so many times we believe that in order to become a Christian, we just have to blindly follow. It's all about faith. And we have to like take our brains out of our heads in order to really be able to have faith in God. And I want to say I totally disagree with that. There are some things you do have to just take on faith, but there's other things that we have evidence for. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about the evidence. Can this, the, can this book be trusted? Now, we're going to be looking at three different types of things. We're going to be looking at historical evidence. We're going to be looking at archaeological evidence today. And then we're going to be looking at prophecy. When somebody said it was going to happen, did it really happen? So let's start with the first one. Let's start with historical evidence. Historical evidence. This is really important. Now, as we look at historical evidence and documents and things of this nature, we always have to remember this. That when you're talking about things in the past, you can't prove or disprove things in the past. Right? I mean, if you think about this... uh, um, if, if let's say you came to church today, you grabbed a, a guest bag or something like that, and you go to work tomorrow, and somebody says, hey, um, hey, Jill, uh, what did you do on Sunday? Well, you know, did you hang out for, what did you do on 9-11? Well, I ended up going to church. Really? You went to church? Yeah. Well, prove it. And you say, okay, well, I, I got this gift bag with a mug. Okay, but that doesn't prove anything. You could, have, you could have made the mug. You could have printed it up. You could have stole it from somebody. Okay, okay. Well, all right. Well, hey, listen, I got a friend over here. He saw me at church. Did you see him at church? Yeah, I saw him at church. Well, that doesn't prove anything because he might be lying, right? I mean, if you think about it, scientifically, we cannot prove anything that happens in the past. Because scientifically, the only way that we can see something happen in the past is it observable and is it repeatable? observable and repeatable. Ask you a question. Can you prove that Abraham Lincoln ever existed scientifically? Now, before you say yes or no, scientifically, it's either observable or repeatable. Have you firsthand observed Abraham Lincoln? If you have, you've been eating some bad pizza. Okay? All right? I have not seen Abraham Lincoln. Some of you are a little old in here, but you're not that old. Okay? Now... Because he was born in the 18... Okay, anyway. The other thing, let me tell you something else. I can't repeat Abraham Lincoln. 
right? I mean, as much as, you know, I'd love to read about his, you know, his, all this. I, I mean, we have even photographs, but those could have been forged. How can, you can't, you cannot prove anything that happens in the past. You just can't. The second thing is this. When you look at evidence, and that's what we're going to be looking at today. When you look at evidence, you don't look at what is a possible explanation, but what is a probable, what is the most probable explanation. Um, When drawing conclusions with evidence, it's not what could have happened, but what probably happened. In fact, you heard in the legal system, you've heard this, you've heard probable Probable cause, exactly right. When you're when you're a juror and you're setting and you're doing you're pronouncing judgment, it's not what's the possible, but what is the most probable cause. That is huge. So we're going to be looking at the Bible. Now the Bible is an ancient text. And as, as we're looking at some of this stuff, some of you, you went to high school, college, and they taught you about Genghis Khan and Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar, and they taught it like it was fact. But, I, but how do they know that? Well, they know it because they have text, ancient text. All right? They have writings that were written a long time ago, and that makes them ancient ancient text, all right? So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Now, follow me on this one. How many of y'all have ever heard of Julius Caesar? All right, that's most of us, all right? Um, Let me tell you a little bit about Julius Caesar. Some of you, you're like, what's the things that you know about Julius Caesar? All right, cool. All right, in fact, I can't understand you, so tell somebody next to you. He, okay, made the calendar, cool. All right, dictator. Okay, cool. All right. Power hungry. Power hungry. Okay. How did he die? Stabbed by who? Brutus. You remember what Caesar's last words were? Et tu, Brute. All right, which means I'm hungry. No, I'm joking. It means in, in, you too, Brutus, right? So we know all of this, right? And we know it because we have, you know, we got educated. And some of you, you maybe you watched a movie about it or something like that. Now, here's what's so interesting. I'm going to be reading to you some, some stories that I've got from Wikipedia and some textbooks, some historical textbooks. And hopefully you won't fall asleep. Now, as I am reading this about Julius Caesar, I want you to ask these questions. How do they know this? I mean, how do they know this? And where did it come from? And how do they know these things? I mean, because there wasn't any photography. There wasn't anybody writing novels really back then. We don't have like a motion picture or somebody with a camera reel. We don't have that. So how do they know this? Well, historians have taken bits and pieces from ancient manuscripts and have pieced them together. Let me read to you, all right, from Wikipedia. Caesar realized that he could not win power without a loyal army, so he declared himself the proconsul of Gaul, a region that is known today as France. In his ten years as proconsul, Caesar brought all of Gaul under Roman rule and showed his superb abilities as a military leader and organizer. Caesar issued written reports about his campaigns and victories to keep the people of Rome well-informed. Students of Latin can still read these detailed reports of what is known today as the Gallic Wars. Now, let's, I'm going to spend some time with there. How we know that, that Julius Caesar ever existed and why your teachers in high school, middle school, college uh, can teach to you that, hey, Julius Caesar was a real person. By the way, he died in 44 B.C., 
All right. Um, how they, 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 they teach Julius Caesar like it's fact, like it's history. And I believe it is. But I want to show to you today the evidence in which they base their facts on, on the history. We have 10 copies of something called the Gallic Wars. And let me tell you a little bit about this. These are 10 of the same copies. They're, they're pretty much identical. And they were written by a historian that Julius Caesar said, Hey, listen, I'm going to be doing some stuff. I want you to write a history about what I'm going to do. Now, by the way, let's just, let me ask you a quick question. Somebody who is, you have an emperor or a dictator, and he tells somebody, I want you to write my history down. Are you going to be able to pretty much believe everything that the historian writes? No. Why not? Because there's going to be some things you leave out. All right, because if you don't leave it out, then he is going to kill you, right? Very, uh, but these we have the, these ten Gallic War copies, all right, that tells us and proves to us that Julius Caesar did all of this stuff. Ten copies. How many copies have we got? Ten. Thank you. Now, by the way, he lived at forty-four BC. Our earliest copies of Julius Caesar, the Gallic Wars, our earliest copies date to nine hundred AD. Now, just some of you are like, all right, hang on with me for a sec. That's a thousand-year gap. All right? Our earliest copies, a thousand-year gap. And um, we only have ten of them. But we, in high school, college, middle school, Julius Caesar did this, 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 this. Right? Now, the reason why we have such a huge time gap between what when he lived and what we have is because manuscripts would get old, they would get outdated, um, they were written on papyrus, or they were written on um, animal skins, and you know stuff decayed, and stuff would get old, and they would have to copy it because they didn't have Xeroxes back then, all right? So that is what we had. Now, that is amazing. Ten copies, a thousand years, but we say Julius Caesar lived, all right? Let me give you another one. We have this other dude, a Roman historian by the name of Tacitus. Now, Tacitus lived around the time of Jesus, about you know 100 A.D., and he wrote tons of historical stuff about Rome, tons of stuff. All right. Now we know that he wrote 30 volumes, but half of those volumes, 15, have never been found ever. They're just lost. So we have 15 volumes of his work, and we have two copies of those volumes. So we have two copies of a guy by the name of Tacitus' work that gives us and fills in all of this historical timeline till around Jesus. All right? It's amazing. Two copies. By the way, the earliest one copy dates at 900 A.D., about 1,000 years after Jesus and Tacitus lived. Another one dates around 1100 A.D., which is like... 1,200 years after Tacitus lived. Those are the earliest copies. Let me show you some more. In fact, these are going to be on the screen. Um, the Iliad. How many of y'all ever read a, a fellow by the name of Homer? All right? Now, I'm not talking Homer Simpson. Homer. All right? Homer is the Odyssey and the Iliad. All right? Um, and they'll put a black background on this. So you can see it in just a sec. But Homer's Iliad. Now, what's so important about this? It's the most accepted non-biblical writing out there. All right? Homer's Iliad. And we have 643 copies of the Iliad. Now, compare that to you know, Caesar's 10 and Tacitus' 2. We have 643. Let me show you another one. Uh, Plato's Republic. All right, y'all, How many of y'all have heard of Plato? All right, and I'm not talking about Plato's closet. 
Plato, all right? Plato's Republic, we have 700 copies of Plato's Republic, and the earliest date till about 1,300 years after Plato lived. That's a huge time gap, isn't it? Let me give you some more. Aristotle, all right? Aristotle, we have five copies of his works that dates about 1,400 years after he lived, all right? Caesar, I've already talked about that. We have 10 copies of Julius Caesar that dates about 1,000 years after he lived. And then Thucydides. Now, this is interesting. The only textual evidence we have that Alexander the Great ever existed. Y'all heard of Alexander the Great, right? The only textual evidence we have that Alexander the Great ever existed is Thucydides. And we have eight copies of this guy who wrote about Alexander the Great, and they're written 1,300 years after Alexander the Great died. He died in 323 B.C. Now, before you fall asleep, all right, and you're like, I thought I came to church, not a school. Hang out just for a sec. You see, our schools, and many of us, we believe that there was a guy by the name of Homer who really lived. We believed in we believe in Aristotle. We've been taught Julius Caesar. We've been taught about Alexander the Great, and we endured a terrible movie about it. All right, um, we uh, we we've heard of Aristotle's teachings. Now, now think about this: when it comes to the Bible, how many manuscripts do you think we got? And let, but, but, this is what's so interesting about this. Before you put it up there, not only do we just have one point of view. Of Jesus. When you look at the Gospels, in fact, if you have your Bibles, turn to the table of contents. The table of contents. I'm gonna, and we're going to do a lot about the table of contents next week about this. All right, The table of contents, you see in there, in the New Testament. What are the first four books of the New Testament? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. By the way, those are all biography talking about one person, and that is Jesus. So not only do we just have not just one account of Jesus, we have four accounts of this guy, Jesus, who never led an army, who never wrote anything, who, who traveled no more than 100 miles away from where he ever lived, who never ran for political office. I mean, you expect that all of Rome and all of their power would be able to sustain and, and we'll, we'll have some historical evidence that Julius Caesar ever existed. Let me show you. Now, th- what's amazing? Caesar, I'm going to talk about this. We don't have... Th- the earliest copies are how old? 980. That means he, he, was, he was in the 44 B.C. is when he died. We don't have any manuscripts dating at 1 AD, 100 A.D. or 200 A.D. or 300 A.D. or 400 A.D. or 500 A.D. or 600 A.D. or 700 A.D. or 800 A.D. but 900 A.D., a thousand years after this new lift. This is the New Testament. The New Testament. We have 24,000 792 copies. Let's all say that number together. 24,792 copies of the New Testament. Now, let me just throw this up here as well. And by the way, our earliest manuscript is not from 900 AD of the New Testament. Because Jesus was around 
you know, 33 A.D., all right, because he, okay. all right. not 800 A.D., that's not the earliest, not 700 A.D., not 600 A.D., not 5, not 4, not 300 A.D., not 200 A.D. We have portions of the book of John, the gospel of John, that date to 125 A.D. By the way, John wrote the book of Revelation, St. John, around 100 A.D. So we have, we have 24,792 copies of the entire New Testament. And the earliest doesn't date thousands of years, but just about 25 years. That is amazing. Now, here's what's so crazy about this. What's so crazy about this is you go to a high school or college or middle school and they, they teach that all of this other stuff is true and it's real and it's historical. And it is, to our knowledge. But when they get to Jesus and they get to the Bible, they start stuttering, hemming, and hawing because, you know what, we just quite, you know, you know it, nobody can believe that stuff. You know, there's no really evidence to support that. You know, it, it, I mean, it's all the... It, And I think that's a crock. I think it's a crock. Because the historical evidence shows us, I mean unequivocally, that this book can be trusted. In fact, our big idea is this. The Bible can be trusted. All right? Somebody told me earlier, that's the shortest big idea you've ever had. You're right. You know why? Because it's pretty simple. The Bible can be trusted. I don't think, you know, there's some things you're going to have to take on faith. I've never seen a man rise from the dead. Haven't. I've never heard God spoke to me audibly. I've never seen a person walk on water. But just because I haven't seen it, doesn't mean it hasn't happened. I've not seen a million dollars personally. Anybody seen a million dollars? If you have, come and talk to me after the service. God has a wonderful plan for your pocketbook. <laughs> no, seriously, I've not seen a million dollars, but does I, do I believe a million dollars exists? You better believe it, right? I mean, that's what I'm talking about. Just because we haven't experienced something, we've not seen something for ourselves, doesn't mean it's not ever happened. I mean, think about 9-11. You know, some people say, well, you know, I've not seen heroic, or hero, you know, people who, who are heroes, but you know, even though I haven't seen it, I've heard so many different stories of how police men and women and firemen and women went up instead of going down those towers to try to rescue people. But many times, you know, I can say, well, just because I hadn't seen it doesn't mean it hadn't happened. No, 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 no. That's not, that, that, that's dumb. So historically, I believe the Bible can be trusted. Let me, let's go to archaeology. I love this stuff. All right, now some of you are like, oh, all right. Hang on just for a second. Now, let me tell you what archaeology, it's the study of old things. And I'm not talking about your parents. It's the study of things that people find in, uh, it's, you know, like, uh, you know, pottery. And uh, how many of y'all ever, like, went, like, I, I used to love going squirrel hunting because I'm a PETA person. I loved going squirrel hunting down in, in Clarksville. And we would go down in the river bottoms. And I remember finding these arrowheads. And I love finding these arrowheads. That would be like archaeology. It's finding something old. All right. Now, let me show you some archaeology. This is so interesting about archaeology. And I'm only talking the New Testament. I'm not even talking about the Old Testament. We're going to talk about that next week. All right. But the New Testament. I want to say this. Is there 
archaeological evidence that proves the Bible to be true. I'm going to give you five or six. The first one is this stone right here. By the way, I've seen this stone. I'll put my hand on this stone. It's in Caesarea. And it was found in 19, this is so very interesting, in 1961. Now, by the way, before they found this stone, let me tell you what it says. It mentions Pilate's name. Pilate was the Roman governor who ordered Jesus to be crucified. Now, before 1961, everybody's like, man, the Bible can't be trusted. It mentions this guy, Pilate, and we have no evidence that this dude ever existed except in the Bible. And, you know, we can't trust the Bible because they're gum. I mean, hey. I mean, no archaeological evidence until 1961, they discover a, a, this, this entire tablet, this stone tablet, written in Latin, Pilate's name. Very, very interesting. So all the critics go, well, okay. And then move on to another one. Let me show you another one. Uh, how many of y'all ever heard of Peter in the Bible? Right? Peter, Simon Peter. This right here is the archaeological evidence. It's the archaeological remains of his house in Capernaum. All right? On top of his house, they built a church. And this is the archaeological remains of Peter's house. That's pretty interesting. All right? Well, that's pretty cool. All right? Let me show you another one. This is really neat. In, in the 1980s, it was 1986, they found a fishing boat in the mud of the Sea of Galilee that dated to the time of Jesus. I've, again, I got to see this firsthand when I was there at the Sea of Galilee. I mean, they, and it's in this enclosed room, and you know, they're, they're controlling the air, but this is a fishing boat found in the mud when, when Israel was experiencing some drought, the water receded, and they found this fishing boat that dated to the time of Jesus. Now, nowhere on there is there a plaque that said Jesus slept here. It's not in there, all right? But could it have been Jesus' uh, boat that Jesus used, or Peter, or James, or John? Could be. All right, let me give you another one. Now, these next two, the jury's still out on, are still out on whether or not they're authentic or not. And I want to be very honest with you guys about that. Um, we, you have uh, sides going on both sides. This is called an ossuary. Now, let me tell you what an ossuary is. An ossuary is a fancy name for, like, for a bone box. All right, a bone box. What happens is when Jewish people passed away, when they died, they would put them in a tomb, and they would roll a stone in front of the tomb, and there the body would decompose and decay for over about a year, about a year and a half, and then they would come in, and the only thing that was remained was, was a skeleton. And what they would do is they would take the bones, and they would put the bones in this bone box called an ossuary. Now, okay, great. So tell me, look, tell me about this one. This ossuary right here is amazing because it mentions on the, on the outside that this is the ossuary of Caiaphas, the high priest. By the way, he was the high priest who was so angry at Jesus, he's the one who started the ball rolling in order to get Jesus crucified and killed. We don't have his bones, but we have the box that the bones used to be in. Give me another one. This one's not as fancy, all right? Not as fancy at all. This is also a, a bone box, an ossuary. But on the outside of this bone box, it says this. These are the bones, these are the remains of James, the half-brother of Jesus. No bones are found inside, but here is the box where we believe that James 
bones used to rest. Now again, archaeolo- you have people on both sides going, it's true, it's not true. They're still looking at the evidence. Here's what's so amazing, and I want to say this very plainly. There's not been one archaeological find, there's not been one that's disproved the Bible to be true. Not one. Every archaeological find has proved the Bible to be true. Every one. Now, I want you to put that in perspective um, with this little thing I'm getting ready to throw out here. All right? You have Joseph Smith who founded the Mormons, the Book of Mormon. And Joseph Smith, he, he wrote these stories how Jesus came to North America and hung out with like some American Indians and that the American Indians built all of this stuff over here. And by the way, I don't believe any of it to be true. Okay? And I'm going to tell you the reason why. Number one, the Book of Mormon has a lot of contradictions. Number two, you know how many archaeological finds we found of all of these different um, cities that was built here? Zilcho. That's a Greek word. It means nada. Nothing. 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 What's amazing about this is you know what? There are some things we're going to have to take on faith because I haven't just I haven't seen it. I've not seen a guy walk on water. But when I hear things like this, you know what that does to my faith? And by the way, all of us doubt, even me. You know what that does to my faith? What does it do to yours? Strengthens it. I'll give you the last one and then we're going to be done. And this last test is prophecy. Prophecy. By the way, when you guys leave here, I'm going to give you a sheet of paper with all of this information on it. All right? So that you can go and Google it for yourself. This is so interesting about prophecy because we have in the Old Testament, and we're going to talk about what that means and how that looks like, how it all pieces together. But this is before Jesus. We have 300 predictions about what Jesus is going to do, where he's going to be born, what's going to happen. How many of y'all like going to movies? How many of y'all like when you're sitting in the movie trying to figure out what's going to happen before the movie ends? Cool. That's what I'm talking about. Now think about this. What if... What would be the odds of you going to 300 movies and say, you know what, this is how it's going to end, and you're right every time? Odds are probably not going to be great, especially if you saw the movie Inception. Other movies, just like, oh, I've seen this one, you know. Um, but uh, follow me on this one. There are over 300 prophecies found in the Old Testament written hundreds, sometimes thousands of years before Jesus ever showed up on the scene. And Jesus fulfilled Every one of those 300 prophecies. And let me give you a few. That he would be born of a virgin. That he would be born in Bethlehem. By the way, Bethlehem was like being born in McMinnville, Tennessee. And you picking that out of the entire United States. You're like, who? Right? right? That Jesus would be a Galilean. That Jesus, um, that he would... Uh, that he would um, be gentle and humble in heart. It says this in Isaiah 53, written seven, 800 years before Jesus ever showed up, that he would be beaten and spat upon, that he would be wounded for our transgressions. It says that uh, he would be hung on a tree and crucified a thousand years before he ever happened, before he ever showed up, that he would be raised again on the third day, that he wouldn't have a bone broken in his body. I'll talk a little bit about that in the next couple of weeks. I mean, those are just a few. 
All right? Um, this is what's so interesting. And again, we're going to give you a sheet of paper with all this. There's this one dude by the name of Peter Stoner who's a mathematician and a scientist. And he said, okay, I'm going to take all these 300 prophecies that's been filled, fulfilled by Jesus. I'm only going to take eight of them. Just eight. I'm not doing 300. I'm doing eight. What are the probability of these eight things coming true and Jesus fulfilling not 300, but how many? Eight. All right. Here's the probability. The probability of just eight of these are one in the tenth to the seventeenth power. By the way, that's one with 17 zeros. Now, let me put this in perspective with other probabilities. Go to the next one. The probability that you're going to be struck by lightning? 709,260. One out of seven and nine. The odds of winning the lottery. How many of y'all do the lottery? All right. Anyone? All right. The odds of you winning the lottery? <laughs> You, you, you are, have a better odds of getting struck by lightning. <laughs> Throwing that out there. But if you do win the lottery, come see me. No, I'm joking. Odds of winning the lottery are 1 in 5,245,786. Now, go back to that one slide. The odds of eight of these prophecies coming true, Jesus fulfilling them, is 1 to the 17th power. That's 1, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, All right? Let me put it to you another way. Let's take, and again, this Peter Stoner says it this way. If you take a silver dollar and you put an X on it, and you throw that silver dollar somewhere over the state of Texas, and it lands anywhere, El Paso, Austin, Dallas, Houston, um, wherever. You throw it somewhere on the state of Texas, and then you take silver dollars and you spread them all over the entire state of Texas in which the silver dollars are now two feet thick all over the entire state. You with me? And then you went out and you took all the time you needed to choose, and then you went, okay, this is where the silver dollar with the X is. And you put you plunge your hand down through two feet of other silver dollars. And you picking out that one the first time. That's the probability of one to the 17th power. But yet Jesus didn't fulfill eight of those prophecies. He fulfilled how many? 300 guys. So can this book be trusted? I say, yes, it can. And if it can be trusted, then what's written in the book can be believed. And if what's written in the book can be believed, and I should, I think I should read it because I believe this book can change and will change and has changed my life. What about you? What about you? As you leave today on our resource table, we're going to have those new through 30 reading plans. We're encouraging everybody at one church to read through the New Testament in 30 days. And if this is your first time here, I would love for you to be able to go and grab some of those as well. I have a couple of questions and then we're going to close. First question is this. No disrespect intended. If God knows all and God knows everything before it happens, then why have an Old Testament and then a do-over with the New Testament? That's a great question. That's a great question. I'm going to mint, I'll answer it a little bit, but I'm really going to be talking about this next week because everybody, I mean, in fact, question, what does the word testament mean? Some of y'all think, well, it's a mint, right? No, it's not. Most of us, we think of, we don't even know what stuff like that means. So I'm really going to delve into this next week. But I'm going to say this very briefly. The Old Testament 
in the New Testament, it's not so much God started something, then he did a do-over. In fact, if you read in the book of Romans that what is contained in the Old Testament, in fact, this is many times called the law, it's revolved around a certain people called the Israelites, the Jews. All right? That's what the Old Testament is written. And God wanted these, the Jews, the Israelites, to reach out to all of these other people and bring them in and show them the truth. The problem is, that didn't happen. And the Jews didn't do that. Instead of reaching out to people, they became like everybody else. So in the New Testament, the New Testament isn't revolving around a, a people group so much as it revolves around one person. And who's that person? Jesus. And Jesus, in a great stroke, I mean, uh, he says, you know what? I'm going to draw everybody to myself. And what's happened over the past 2,000 years? That is what has exactly happened. I'm going to go into a lot more detail about this next week. But very good question. Very good question. All right. What about this one? What does the Bible say about suicide? All right. That's a great question. And we'll end on this one. You know, the Bible, when we read in the Bible, and in the Old Testament and in the New, the Bible talks about suicide, like Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus, committed suicide. All right? Um, but we also read in the Old Testament that Saul, King Saul, the person before King David who did the giant, you know, the stone and all that, he committed suicide. You have, we, we have a lot of people who commit suicide in the Bible. I think this is where your question is going. Because there's, there's been some denominational church teachings, mainly um, uh, a, a church called the Catholic Church has taught that if you commit suicide, then you will go to hell. And you need to know that is found nowhere in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible. I can tell you how they got that. They got that. They believe that unless somebody confesses their sins to a priest, then their sins aren't forgiven. And, of course, when you commit suicide, you're murdering. You're murdering yourself. So you don't have the opportunity or the chance to be able to ask forgiveness for your sins. Now, let me read to you what the Bible has to say about this. All right? Um, I'm reading in 1 John chapter 1, uh, verse 9, and it says this. If we claim that we are free of sin, then we're only fooling ourselves. A claim like that is errant nonsense. So everybody is messed up. On the other hand, if we admit our sins, make a clean uh, stroke of them, he won't let us down. He'll be true to himself. He'll forgive our sins and purge us of all wrongdoing. You see, this hasn't, God is not up there like with a little ticker tape and going, okay, you did this, check. All right, did this, I'm going to hold that against you. It's not, it's not like that at all. In fact, the Bible says in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of God's standard. Romans 6.23 says this, that the results of our sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. That if we will ask him to forgive us of our sins the sins that you've done up to this point, the Bible says he will forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That means God's going to forgive you of all the sins you've done in the past, all the sins you're doing now, because he knows what you're thinking, all right? and all the sins you're going to do tomorrow. Because it's, I mean, think about this. When Jesus died, he died for all of our sins. And when did he die? He died 2,000 years ago. That means all of the sins that he died for, for you, were all future sins, right? Because you weren't around yet. 
So nowhere in the Bible does it say that if you commit suicide, you will go to hell. That, that's not the question of whether or not somebody goes to heaven or hell. Let me tell you a, a better question is this. When somebody dies, do they know Jesus Christ as their Savior? Do they have a relationship with their Heavenly Father? And that is the defining point. It has nothing to do about how you end your life. But while you're living your life, who do you trust in? Now, here's the thing. We've read and we've heard about all these people who don't trust because of this or this or this. But I want to end with this verse. This is in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, because this is talking about God's word. By the way, the Bible can be trusted. And look at what it says here. For the word of God is full of living power. It is sharper than the sharpest knife, cutting deep into our inmost thoughts and desires. It, what's that next word? Exposes us for what we really are. Could it be that the reason why we have so many people says, you know what, you can't trust this. It has nothing to do with the evidence that they've looked at because if they've looked at the evidence at all, they would become a believer. And this has nothing to do with head stuff. It has nothing to do with evidence. It really has something to do with heart stuff. It exposes their true intentions. Because really, at the end of the day, so you may be struggling with, you know, should I trust God or not? And it may be a head issue, but ultimately, it's going to have to be a heart issue. And here's the thing. If you trust this book, then you know what? Then we're going to have to believe what God says about this book and what God says about himself and about us. And to be honest with you, none of us like what God says about us in this book because it says that we are lost without Jesus. That God wants to save us and God wants to direct our paths. And to be honest with you, nobody likes being told what to do. And that really is what God's Word exposes in all of us. It has nothing to do with evidence, with most people not trusting this. It has to do with, I don't want God telling me what to do. What's your excuse? What's your excuse for not reading this? You not believe it? You don't trust it? You too busy? Maybe you just don't have the right... You read the Bible. I was talking to another person the other day, and when they read it, they just don't understand it. You know, we give away Bibles here for free, ones that you can understand. Pick one up, whatever it is. Fill the excuses and dig in. Dear God, I thank you so much, Lord, for how you love us, Lord, and how you don't ask us just to, just to take a huge, wild step of faith all the time. There are some times that we do. There are some times that we just, we're going to have to take it by faith. But there's other times, Lord, where you give us evidence and you show us what's going on. And Lord, I thank you and I love you that we can trust you. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.